0: at paypal.me forward slash HPO pod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Welcome to the QA episode, folks. Uh you know, Sean and I are trying to do these every once in a while where we get, you know, we get questions on social media and directly to the uh, show email address, which is HPO podcast at com. And, uh, when we have an open slot on the recording days, we try to answer a few of those and, uh, try to help you folks out as much as we can. So we're going to do one of those. I think this is maybe our fourth or fifth one that we've done since starting. So, uh, maybe yeah, not as... doing
1: these about once every six weeks, it seems like so, but yeah, maybe the fifth time we've done questions and so we'll continue to do it in that scape and so so for you guys that are patrons we'll put your questions at the front of the queue so you get your your questions answered first is one of the one of a number of little benefits for for kicking in the whatever five bucks or whatever it is here and there to kind of help us keep putting out this content um, mm-hmm. and we certainly appreciate you guys that do that so,
0: our yeah, and I will I will. I'll, I'll will remind listeners too, if you are a Patreon donor, uh, definitely put that in the emails when you send them that way, just so I know, because uh, you know, our, our Patreon numbers are high enough where if you don't put that, it it's possible that I miss that you are a Patreon donor and um, we do want to kind of reward our Patreon supporters with that front of the line type of um, perk. So please, if you're a donor and you have a question, put that in there and we'll try to get yours as quickly out there as possible.
1: Okay, first question comes from Justin Ma, who, who says, he, he says basically, hi, Zach, hi, Sean. I'm a Patreon patron or HBO, and I'd like to submit the following question for the future Q&A session. So first of all, thank you for being a patron. So your question is, question, how should we introduce a six-month-old, how should we introduce six-month-old infants to solid foods? The standard advice is to introduce starches, grains, vegetables, and fruit for at least six months before introducing proteins, meats, and dairies. However, I'm skeptical of this initially carb-heavy advice. Can you recommend an effective alternative, alternative approach, or can you point us to resources that cover paleo-low-carb ways to feed solid foods to infants? Zach, do you want to do, answer this, or you want me to take that, or what's your thoughts?
0: Um, I mean, as someone who is probably woefully unprepared to answer that question, I would, I, my, my first like, level of skepticism is like, why would you not be able to give dairy to a six-month-year-old? I mean, we're, I'm just hopping under the pretense that essentially any child who's breastfeeding has been getting dairy for their first six months. So is that just relation to dairy from a source outside of their mother, I'm guessing, or is that where that recommendation comes from?
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, as someone who, who's had kids and who's also a physician, I have a little a little bit of insight. But I think, you know, I think a resource, and some people will like to use the Weston A. Price Foundation. They've got some very nice weaning resources. So that would be my first thought as a place to go. But I mean, in general, I don't think there's any problem whatsoever in, to introducing animal-based products into, a, into an infant's uh, diet. Uh, you know, optimally, you're, you're gonna, they're going to be breastfed. You know, I think most people would argue at least a year, although many women aren't for whatever reason can't do that some can't breastfeed at all many many people will talk about introducing solid food between four and six months for for a lot of babies Well that's but you know ideally we're breastfeeding the whole time and so if we're doing that we don't need we don't need you know dairy or milk in the diet if we're still getting breast milk but i mean as far as introducing animal products i mean little kids do great with that i mean you you can you can certainly puree you know the, the biggest concern is a choking hazard and so you mm. just have to make sure that the meat products that you introduce is, is just puree, And you can easily do that get a food processor and do that and feed it to them. You know, you can let kids gnaw literally gnaw on bones, uh, you know, that, that aren't going to break off in their mouth. They can gum on those. It helps well with teething. Kids do well with that. And so there's a lot of parents that will let kids chew on little, you know, you know, bones that they can hold in their hand are not small enough for them to choke on and they're not, they're not going to break off. And they can sit there and gnaw on that. That can help with teething. So I don't see a problem introducing, you uh, the animal based foods, you know, as solid foods as soon as you decide that you're able to do so. Um, yes, I do think we we sort of get these kids on this, uh, you know, grain based diet, which probably we shouldn't be on at all. But we started started early, and that sort of sets up the vicious cycle of this up and down glucose roller coaster. You know, from day one, and many kids are exposed to that in utero uh, with mothers that are eating that type of diet, so they're already starting out with probably insulin malregulation which is uh you know probably not ideal and so i think uh yes i agree let's not get the kids on a grain sugar-based diet you know if you want to put some vegetables and fruits in there that's probably reasonable i mean i would just I would, you know again we talk about the babies getting colic and that very well may be this uh uh vegetation fiber in the diet which is causing a lot of gastric dis- dis- discomfort and distress which we kind of attribute to normal and they're gassing you have to burp them all the time and so perhaps maybe not going overboard on those things and maybe sticking more to animal-based products would mitigate some of that. So anyway, but check out the Weston A. Price Foundation. I know that we've got some good information on, on early childhood diet diets, and I think that's probably reasonable as well. Zach, you want to do the next one?
0: Cool, yeah. Uh, our next question is from Sharif Ali Shahid, And uh, Sharif asks, Hello, Zach, I have a question for Dr. Baker. I recently watched Peter Atiyah give a talk about longevity he mentioned that when people reach 100 years of age, the most likely cause of their death is heart disease and cancer. The same as everybody who doesn't reach 100 years of age, so it would seem, in a first world context, the delay of the onset of these two diseases is the main driver in longevity. My question is about vitamin K2, and to a lesser degree, CLA. It seems like vitamin K2 is valuable asset in the fight against these two diseases reversing the calcification of plaques in the case of heart disease and suppressing the under or unrestrained growth of tumors. In the case of cancer, I understand the need to keep the diet affordable with metabolic syndrome disproportionately affecting the poor and that the number of one priority has to be restoring insulin sensitivity but should we be advising people with limited dollars that those dollars are equally spent on K2 rich grass-finished ground beef and K2 poor grain-finished ribeyes?
1: Okay, Sharif, that's a good question. And, you know, I certainly agree with with Dr. Atiyah that, you you know, it doesn't matter how old you are, you're going to die of the common diseases in many cases, in most cases, heart disease. And so aging is basic or sort of you know, preventing aging is basically the same thing as preventing disease, basically aging really is disease and it just accumulates over time. And so the longer we can say disease free, number one, our better, we're going to have better quality of life, but then also we're likely to live longer. And, and that's what we see. And we, as we see people get older, eventually we see them start to decay. They start to sort of, sh- you know, most people that reset age are not very robust. They're very sort of gaunt looking at that point. And so we have to prevent that. But as far as you know, uh, vitamin K two conjugated linoleic acid with CLA, uh, yes, it's uh, it's a decent source. You get in grass fed meats. There's there's some other uh, animal products where it's where, it, where it's uh, found in. You know, I don't know. That's the whole story. I mean, I think there's many, many, many things that go into preventing disease, and uh, you know, preventing uh, or limit or sort of helping us to live longer. Uh, certainly, being on a diet that has appropriate nutrition is going to be very, very good. I think, again, animal-based nutrition is certainly going to help you get the things you mentioned, vitamin K2 and CLA, and, and many, many other things that we need. Um, with, with regard to the question about grass finish versus grain finish, talking about limited budgets, um, you know, it depends on how, how limited people are. I mean, there, there certainly is conjugated linoleic acid. There certainly is vitamin K2 in grain-finished beef. Uh, it may not be. The exact amounts we see in a grass finished product, but it's by no means are you going to get none. And you know, certainly if you're looking at vitamin K2, dairy can be a good source of that as well. And that's that's often very inexpensive. And so you can get certain cheeses and stuff like that that have uh K2. So I, I don't, again, I think when it comes to someone really struggling financially and grass finished products are out of reach, I still think we, we have to say let's just go with the grain finished um, for now. And, and, and that's often in many cases good enough. I, I haven't seen evidence to contradict that at this point. Maybe that'll come in down in the future. Hopefully we'll get some studies that can really assess these types of things. With regard to vitamin, with regard to calcification reversal, that's a controversial and interesting topic. We are seeing um, at least anecdotally some people talking about or showing evidence on coronary artery calcium scans where they are seeing. Lessening of calcifications. Now, this is still early. Uh, I've talked to Dr. Ted Naaman about that. He says he sees that in his patients. I've seen patients report it to me. Um, The question becomes is it just a differential in the type of machine used? Is it a differential in the type of unit? Still controversial whether it's happening. I suspect it probably is. And I do think that that probably is a good sign. You know, anything that reverses disease is going to be likely beneficial. And I think, you know, just the simple things is. Reducing your waste-to-height ratio become tremendously important, and we can see that very easily when people switch to an animal-based diet. So, hopefully, that you know doesn't make things too confusing, but I, but I do think, um, just the switch from an animal-based, from a carb-heavy, particularly processed food-based diet to an animal-based diet, probably gets you 90% of the way, in my view, and then and then the last. You know, 10% can be these other things, and, and there's a whole bunch of things that can go into that, but that's, a, that's an excellent question excellent point. Zach, any comments?
0: Yeah, and I think also worth considering is when we're looking at things like the amount of vitamin K2 you're looking to get, uh, when, when we just look at kind of the mainstream nutrition protocols, if someone was, say, to look at kind of where they're getting their K2 from, you know, we're looking at most folks probably eating red meat in a quantity of four to eight ounces, maybe a few times a week. Uh, Whereas you get, you know, a lot of the listeners of this podcast that are more meat based who they may be, you know, tripling, quadrupling, quintupling that amount of meat per week, if not going above that. So then when you look at it that way, even if you have a reduced amount of K2 and CLA in grain finished beef compared to grass fed beef, the amount of grain-finished beef you may or maybe are consuming is that much higher than the amount of grass-fed beef just the average person is going to be eating to begin with. So um, that may be worth a consideration. And I, and I say that without knowing the exact ratios of what the estimates of K2 or CLA are in grain-fed versus grass-fed. Um, another thing, too, is I think eggs that are more free-range in the sense that there's something to do with them consuming bugs and maggots versus, you know, the vegetarian fed hens have a higher rate of uh, K2 in them. Um, But again, just, you know, that, that may run into the same problem too, because you're probably going to pay two, three times as much for that sort of a carton of eggs versus whatever you find kind of generically in the grocery store. Uh, But yeah, no, other than that, I think, um, I think uh, everything you said, Sean is pretty spot on from what I can tell.
1: This next one looks like it's kind of more up your alley, at least a little bit. So, Scott Armstrong, gentlemen, so thankful for the HBO podcast that I recently subscribed to. The info is phenomenal. Well, thanks for that, Scott. Uh, He says, I've been living a keto, low carb lifestyle for two and a half years now. I run marathon distances as my A races with half or or two and a few 10Ks, 5Ks throughout the year. You both and your guests have convinced me through the science to move into a carnivore way of eating. As I have begun to eliminate carbs and increase my protein, fish, eggs, pork, bacon, beef, and full-fat cheese, I have intermittently been getting acid reflux. I'm a coffee drinker and have been consistently for almost 15 years. Um, any thoughts as to why this happens or suggestions to get rid of it? Thanks, Kevin, for great work and interviews. Uh, well, he's a marathon runner anyway, so I'll <laughs>
0: let you start yeah. on this one? <laughs> yeah, it's a... Uh, it- that's interesting. I mean, I'm not sure, like, did it say on here how long he's been focusing on carnivore? Seems like that's maybe the newest thing that he entered into the equation. Um, low carb, two and a half years, coffee drink for 15 years. So if he didn't notice it through that, then I would first guess that, you know, maybe his body is still kind of adjusting to the, um, the the acid secretion needs of his new diet, more animal based or carnivore based. Um, I know coffee can give some folks acid reflux, uh, but it seems like with this, it's somehow in the combination of his new, new nutrition. If that's the culprit, you could try taking the coffee out. If you want to, you know, see if eliminating that would, would do any different, uh, do anything different. Uh, but other than that, I don't know, Sean, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, there, there are a number of people that adopt a carnivore diet that will notice uh, some digestive issues, particularly early on. Sometimes it, ha- sometimes it has to do with poor acid secretion, and so this is the opposite of what we think with reflux. Uh, reflux may be due to you know, a poor diet, and we see that the stomach has difficulty digesting that, um, and, and we see actually maybe even some, some degree of uh, gas forming in the stomach in the, in the, in the, uh, in the upper digestive tract, which may lead to reflux, you know, and so early distension in the stomach. And I think that's probably more the issue. And so it may just be a problem handling the higher meat, meat-based diet. Some people will find that, that actually supplementing acid, you know, betaine hydrochloric acid, for instance, can help with that. Other people find that, you know, many people, when they switch to a, a meat-based diet, they find that their meal frequency goes down. They tend to eat a larger meal. Uh, rather than five or six smaller meals a day, they may eat one or two big meals out of the day. And sometimes the stomach isn't ready for that, and that's just too much volume. So you may find that initially parsing that out into smaller and smaller meals for a period of time may uh, maybe a benefit with that. And then, and then I, yeah, then certainly uh, coffee can 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 lead to coffee. I think can contribute to, to acid reflux, and so I would you know certainly play with maybe um, limiting that. Um, Playing with the timing of that, some people find that uh, uh, drinking the coffee with the meal rather than as a standalone thing may be a benefit. There, there, there are different thoughts on that. So I would, I would, you know, play with those couple of things. You know, smaller meals, either eliminating the coffee or changing the, the timing of the coffee, and then um, potentially look at some of these supplements. You know, whether it's hydrochloric acid supplements, some people use a lipase supplements, and those things potentially may be a benefit.
0: Hey, Sean, this actually reminded me, your answer did, and I think we actually maybe talked about this on one of the podcast episodes, because one thing that I was told when I kind of first started a high fat diet was that when you kind of move towards what I think a lot of people find themselves with these less frequent larger meals, is you're giving your body essentially more time to kind of build up the bile that's going to be secreted when you eat. And if you're coming from a previous nutrition plan that had you eating like a bunch of small meals per day, essentially what you're telling your body to do is you're pinging that bile release on a schedule that's faster than it's able to really fill those up. So like um, when you kind of switch things around, the body needs time to kind of adjust. And really when people are getting some of that acid reflux, it's because the bile secretion isn't quite up to par to what it's being asked to do is is what I'm saying have any validity to it, or is that kind of what you're getting at with maybe start out with the more frequent meals, get, get yourself kind of transition, and then maybe move to the fewer meals as you get further along?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's certainly uh, a very reasonable reasonable transition option. I don't think there's anything. And I think, you know, like, like anything, you know, once we, when we radically alter our diet, I mean, our body does have to adapt to that, and we may see that, uh, you know, we're we more efficient at producing, you know, whatever, whatever's required, whether it's bile salts, whether, you know, whether it's uh, different proteases and lipases that, you know, you, I don't think your body is particularly good at, I mean, it's, it's generally pretty good at adapting and reacting to what it's, what it's asked to do, and so if there's no reason to, reason to produce a lot of lipases because you're on a low-fat low diet, it doesn't make any sense energetically to make those things, and so I think the same thing happens with whatever it is. Bile, uh, stomach acid is debatably. I think some people that think stomach acid may be an all-or-nothing type of thing, but I'm not sure, you know, where the research is on that currently. But yeah, certainly that is not unreasonable, uh, you know, not an unreasonable thought process. In that.
0: Cool. This episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by Peterson's Natural Farms. Peterson's has been bringing high-quality protein to market since 1992. All their farms are self-sustaining family farms. Their farmers grow all the food used to feed their pigs and give their pigs open pens, which allow them to roam and frolic naturally. They use no growth hormones or antibiotics they use real seasonings and even smoke their meat with real wood chips rather than liquid smoke. If you would like to support HPO and high quality farming, please visit PetersonFarms.com, that's P E D E R S O N S F A R M S.com, and enter HPO checkout. Now, back to the show. All right. Uh, Our next question is from Jeff. uh, And Jeff asks, is there anything that can be done for extra skin? I know your opinion on fasting, but I have also followed a few fasting groups where people have had success eliminating extra skin through autophagy, supposedly. I do remember Amber O'Hearn making a comment that high animal protein in absence of carbs may increase mTOR in the muscle. But also inhibit this in the liver, which may allow for autophagy without long term fasting. I would love any direction you could give here. And this is actually a two part question. So, do you think we should just tackle this part first and then move on to the second part? Yeah, that's fine.
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah, about extra skin. Um, you know, that's a, a, an interesting topic. And it's kind of a, you know, because we now have so many obese people that lose weight, and it's certainly a problem. Many of them. Depending on how much skin it is, many of them go go on and have uh, uh, skin removal surgery. I mean, there's an interesting, uh, well, there's an interesting surgery called the Charles Procedure for people with lymph, lymph, chronic lymphedema, and it's, uh, it's a very brutal-looking procedure. I've seen that done before. But, uh, yeah, with uh, extra skin, I mean, again, this is not, I'm, I'm going to be honest, there's not any great science behind this. We are anecdotally seeing people that say that, if they go on a carnivore-style diet or a fasting-style diet that they tend to maybe anecdotally see less loose skin than, than if people do, like, a bariatric surgery where, you know, the weight just falls off. And, they're, you know, the weight's falling off, but often often has to do with malnourishment, you know, because they lose weight rapidly and they're, they're, they're just losing nutrition. You know, they're just not getting nutrition, whereas a, maybe a more animal-based diet where you'd lose weight that way you're getting the you're still getting the proteins you need that that are required to to build healthy skin, whether it's the elastins and other collagens or the collagens that are in skin so um you know I think it's something that takes time um i don't know you know I don't know that if you've got like thirty pounds of loose skin hanging here and you're going to have that all disappear over time there may be some you know again it depends on how much you're talking about but um You know, I think with a natural eating pattern that we see on an animal-based diet, most people fall into, you know, typically once, twice a day, sometimes three times a day. So there's generally um, a time period where this autophagy can can occur. And so I think there's probably some degree of improvement with that, um, whether it's going to be 100% resolution, hard to say. I mean, I just, the answer is I just don't know for sure. But But I mean, I think there's at least anecdotal evidence to support that. It does seem to help doing it, you know. You know that the, the way of you know maybe maybe including protein in the diet, adequate protein and building blocks in the diet, and then uh, you know periods of periods of not eating.
0: Yeah, and you know, hopefully that uh, enough people will lose enough weight over the following or, or the coming years that this will be a big enough concern that will be more research put into stuff like this. Um, But, you know, the one thing I thought of when I read this was there was that story about the guy who, I don't know if it was a record, but he set some kind of fasting uh, record of like over a year. It was like maybe three, I think he went like 380 days or something like that without eating. And I mean, he was like morbidly obese. So he had like tons of body fat. And one thing that they noticed that they found found interesting about his experience was he didn't have the loose skin as he lost weight; it tended the elasticity tended to return. And I'd have to look back at the story to remember exactly what their theories were with that, but I know there was a couple things that they were maybe pointing to. And one was that since he did it through fasting, it like his body was actually like pulling from resources from the entire body as opposed to like like not not breaking the skin down or something like that. And that caused it to, um, you know, tighten back up. The other thing I found interesting is he wasn't, he was on, he was being very carefully watched. So like they were doing like, like supplementation for, for minerals and micronutrients and stuff like that. So who knows if that was playing a role in returning his skin's elasticity. Cause I know Sean, you mentioned like if you're fasting for a long time, you're depriving your body of nutrients. So it's gonna find those things somewhere and maybe his, his supplementation regimen, even though it was zero calorie, had something to do with it. But again, speculation, I think this is probably an area that we have a lot of anecdotes and very little clear direction as to where to go.
1: Yeah, absolutely. All right, next question is, or next part of this question is, um, I find myself wasting more ribeye than I can afford well, shame on you. <laughs> as a result of all, as a result of an illness, okay, that took over my life a decade ago, I still, I still suffer occasional dysphagia. So dysphagia, for you don't know, this means difficulty swallowing. Uh, though my trouble involves difficulty initiating swallow, swallowing, not food getting stuck. As a result, I have to chew more than most. I still panic watching my teenage daughter stuff huge pieces of steak in her mouth and then swallow after a few chews. It takes me longer to eat. Because of this, I find the steak gets tough before I can finish it. I generally only have a few hours in the house, given that I take my oldest to JROTC by 5.30 an hour away and often don't get out of work until between 5 and 7 p.m. With a one- to two-hour commute, don't move to central Arizona. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I have taken uh, Michaela's advice, and I'm sure he's referring to Michaela Peterson's advice, and add the leftover ribeye grease to the ground burger to make it more palatable. palatable But I just don't feel as well as I do after eating ribeyes. Other than sous vide on my wish list, a suggestion for getting the steak cooked perfectly. It was embarrassing to ask this as cooking meat should be something an eight year old can handle. <laughs> uh, Zach, do you want to sure. jump into I've that? Sure.
0: I've got a couple thoughts and then you can. Probably add to it, I'm sure. My first thought with this is um, well, I mean, I harken back to our first question is like when maybe treat it the same way you would if you were trying to introduce meat to a six month year old or a one year old and try to puree it, um, turn it into something that's more consistent to like a baby food and eliminate the need to have to chew as much. My second thought is if that's not as appealing to you, and I can understand not wanting to puree your meat as opposed to eating it more traditionally. And, one thing I find is when I really want to get a, a piece of meat to consistently be really moist and almost kind of what I would describe as partially pre-digested is I slow cook it. You know, anywhere from eight to 12 hours, I'll just put in a big roast or um, any, any type of s- steak really into the slow cooker with a layer of broth and then just let it sit there on low for a few hours. And that usually gets it to kind of let fall off the bone type softness. So that might help kind of get you to a point where you can consistently have an easier to chew uh, end product.
1: Yeah. I mean, um, you know, as far as cooking techniques, I mean, you can get a sous vide wand for about 70 bucks. I mean, that's, that is certainly something there. And that, that is a very consistent way and a reliable way to do that. So I mean, that, that that's very easy. You know, I, I like to reverse sear my steaks often. Um, you know, I've got I've got a lot of ways to cook steaks. I <laughs> said so I experiment quite a bit, and so there's a lot of ways to make it good. Some it's just you know just getting comfortable with what you have and, and just repetition. You know, doing what you do, and it you know it takes you know it may take a couple months to really kind of dial in. I mean, I can. I, it's almost like I've got a sense in the back of my head when I need to flip the steak now or you know get in there and, and do that. I kind of you just kind of have a natural. For some reason, you get this natural rhythm, whether it's standing by the grill or you know something like that. You just kind of know what 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 the what the what the size of the steak is, how long you need to do it. It's, it really is just practice, and practice makes perfect, just like anything else. But yeah, I mean, sous vide is a pretty no-brainer way to do. You know, you get your steaks to whatever whatever temperature you like. You know, rare, medium rare, or something like that. It's going to probably come out with a pretty uh, you know not tough. You know, the more you cook it, the tougher they're going to get. So the less you cook it, the, the less tough they're going to get, particularly as you get around medium rare, which many people think is the optimal way to cook a steak. There's some people that will argue about that, but I think that works pretty well. Um, you know, it's cutting them smaller. You know, cut, your, cut your steak and just cut it in real small pieces instead of, you know, the traditional inch by inch piece. You know, maybe cut that into, you know, quarter inch bites so you don't have to do that. I mean, just swallowing i mean this is something that uh humans can do i mean without even chewing i mean and, and generally it's interesting you know we had molly schuyler the competitive eater and she, you know she goes through 22 pounds of meat in one sitting and doesn't swallow i mean doesn't doesn't chew any of it she basically rips off a chunk and it you know giant chunk and swallows it down and the inuit were surprisingly noted to do the same thing they would just gulp it right down and that that sometimes helps people with the grisly bits you know like some people don't like to chew the real Chewy, gristly pizza meat, so they just swallow it directly down, and that may be one way to get in a little bit of uh, more collagen for some people that, that like to supplement collagen. And so, I mean, those those are the tips I would I would say. I don't know what's causing your dysphagia. Maybe you know it might be that being on a good diet long term will fix that problem. I would not be surprised because there's a lot of I think a lot of our digestive issues are basically probably related to poor diet. And as that diet gets better, a lot of times those things get better. So maybe with time, that dysphagia that you're having may even resolve to where it becomes not an issue. But in the interim, um, or or if it doesn't, I mean, you know, consider what we've talked about. Different cooking techniques, cutting much smaller, and then going from there. And and like I said, I do think that uh, a fattier cut of meat is easier to eat, ultimately, for most people, and more in line with what we need nutritionally. Zach, cool. Zach, you
0: want to go uh, start the next question there? we got, uh, sure. looks like Todd uh, Sondgan. Sondgan, Todd Sondgan, yes. Todd says, hi, Sean, Zach. I really enjoy the show. I've been trying the carnivore diet now for about four to five weeks and noticed a couple of things. My resting heart rate has gone up about 10 beats or so. My blood pressure is higher, 125 to 131 over 70. I'll have fluttery heartbeat every once in a while. My heartbeat is stronger, too. Was wondering if you have seen others experience the same?
1: Uh, yeah, I have. Um, you know, it may just be uh, simply a matter of uh, fluid status. I mean, you know, uh, the, the the blood pressure you have is not particularly high. I wouldn't be too concerned about those numbers: one twenty five over 70, 131 over seventy. Not really an issue that I would get excited about. You know, quite honestly, and, you know, it, it again, it, it may just be, um, you know fluid balance issue, and it may sort itself out, uh, you know, 10, 10 beats per minute, you know, that, uh, you know, long term, we'd like to see our, you know, resting heart rate be lower, ideally, but again, this is so four or five weeks in, I wouldn't really worry about it. I mean, I would say, give it, you know, three, four, five, six months, see where you're at. Um, you know, if you have unusual heartbeats, or you're having chest pain, certainly, or anything like that, that certainly merits a visit to your physician to make sure there's nothing beyond that going on i mean most likely you know unless you you're telling me you have some other types of symptoms you know lightheadedness passing out chest pain it's probably not a big issue but like i said if it's something that is concerning you don't hesitate to go see your friendly neighborhood doctor and just you know have, have them check you out like i said most likely it sounds like nothing uh and probably will go away with time you, you may want to consider um you know, some people will do better, for better with some electrolyte support and fluid support. See how that does. You know, if you got a little more fluid in you, you're probably going to have a, uh, you know, a, a lower resting heart rate. So those are things I would consider. Zach, any thoughts?
0: Yeah, I think fluid is definitely the first thing to look at. I know I have a fair bit of personal experience with fluid fluctuations just based on the amount of running I do. It's, you know, pretty easy for me to get dehydrated if I neglect fluid intake. Um, so the, one of the things, the first thing I notice if I'm dehydrated is that heart rate is noticeably quicker. Um, noticeably like it's like you can feel it almost versus just not noticing it there. Like I think most people associate with their heart unless they're actively trying to feel their heart rate or test it, they're not noticing it beating that much. Um, and that, so that's where I would start. Uh, and if that doesn't do it, the other thing that, when I notice my heart resting heart rate is above normal. And when it's starting to get up into that double digit range, like 10 plus beats above what it normally is. Um, especially like upon waking up, if I track my heart rate overnight or something like that, that, that can be a sign that I've kind of done quite a bit of exercise. I my asking for a little, little bit of stress, Given a day or five weeks, the normalized workout routine a little more stressful on you, and that could be the, what it's happening. So it could just be kind of adjusting to the diet too. Um, those are kind of the first two things I would maybe uh, consider looking at before, say, pulling the plug on, the, on it altogether. But hydration, definitely first.
1: Hey Zach, do you want to do one more? We've hit five. We've got one more that might be. Sure. Yeah, might let's be. do it. Let's do one more and, and then call it holiday. Cool. So I'm going to uh, find it here. Is it Corey? I'll, I'll go ahead and read this one. It says, Thank you for bringing air of credibility from the scientific community. After telling people I only eat animal products, it's a lot easier to convey my sanity. After explaining that there are healthy, well-educated people with MDs recommending this diet based on the latest in personal data and personal observations, my question concerns BCAAs or branched chain amino acids. My limited understanding of them is that they serve as building blocks that can be used to construct new proteins. I've been strength training regularly for only a few months, but I've experienced wonderful newbie gains. I like to shorten the time to build muscle strength and size. I'm turning 30 this week. I'm 5'7", 145 to 150 pounds, lean, but not scrawny, and stand to benefit from some extra muscle. Is there any point in supplementing a carnivore, carnivorous diet with uh, branch chain amino acids, or am I already, as I suspect, getting more than enough of them in my diet to the point where BCAAs wouldn't add any t- wouldn't would not add any tangent tangible benefit. Thank you for the great information podcast. Zach?
0: Um yeah, I mean my first thought would be if you're following a carnivorous diet, supplementing with the things that meat is the most rich in is, you know, probably not the first move I would make. Um, but uh I want to say if I'm remembering right, some of the science on BCAAs are within the context of working out is it's potential that they could have a central nervous stimulant effect, which I don't know if this would be any benefit to someone doing bodybuilding or powerlifting because the workouts are probably relatively short in duration and you don't really probably need to do a whole lot of central nervous stimulating in that situation but i think i've seen some stuff with endurance folks where like if you're out there long enough taking that can kind of create an alertness which you know when you're fighting the mental battle of pushing when you don't want to be out there pushing anymore could be a benefit but i would consider that more of a tertiary benefit or something that could be met with with a different uh a different a way to kind of stimulate that central nervous system uh but they yeah, that's about all i have i think what do you think, Sean?
1: Yeah, I think uh, supplementing like branched chain amino acids in a, in a carnivore diet is just a waste of money. You don't need to do it. You know, if you're getting, you're getting, you're going to get plenty of that. You know, on a meat based diet. That's why animal protein is so superior because we they're rich in in, in branched chain amino acids. So I, I see no point in that. Now, as far as you know, the wanting the shortcut, everybody wants a shortcut to build muscle. But <laughs> I mean, in general, I mean, this is what we're looking at. We're looking at, um, you know, you need to eat. A food that has a rich source of amino, amino acids, number one. Uh, things like leucine, which are, are, are rich in animal source protein to stimulate mTOR, are, are paramount. You have to do resistance training, uh, and the training needs to be done in a fashion so that it, that it maximally stimulates the muscle fiber recruitment. So you've got to do that, now. whether that's high reps, low reps, heavy weight, lightweight, uh, probably at least 40% of your one rep max. Um, doing that, you know, there are people that will advocate a hit style of training, where you just do, you know, basically one set to complete, you know, absolute failure, so to speak. Uh, those are different options. But there's very different, very, very, various options and different ways to get there. And there's different ad- adherence to that. whether it's, you know, drop sets, supersets, bodybuilding style, high volume, you know, you know, different frequencies. There's different ways to do that. But at the end of the day, it's about really is about. What's going to maximally recruit those muscle fibers? And again, there's many ways to do that. when we're talking about muscle hypertrophy and putting on size. And then there has to be adequate recovery. And I think that's also important there. And so, um, and then the other thing is a caloric surplus. And so you've got to eat enough. And and you may find, like uh, like our guest John Anderson, who's a huge massive bodybuilder. Granted, he's you know he's using you know exogenous substances as well, like most bodybuilders do. But you have to probably, you probably will find more frequent meal eating, maybe three, four, five times a day, you know, as probably the best way uh, to do this, you know, although most people on a car were not like myself, we only eat once or twice a day typically. But I think if your goal is absolute hypertrophy, if you want to stack everything in your favor, then again, it's um, appropriate training, appropriate caloric surplus, of meal frequency possibly getting some food in within a couple hours, some protein in within a couple hours of, of, of your of your workout. Those things are all going to give you a small but 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 tangible benefit. So those are the, that's the shortcut I think but there's a lot of hard work and even the eating can be hard work. So you know you know if you want to put on, if you want to put on 10 20 pounds of muscle you know fortunately you're a newbie because you can do it. You know when you get to be 40 years in the game like I am you know you're happy to get one or two pounds which is sometimes tough. So Anyway, um, what else? We, are we good, Zach? Should
0: we do another I think one? So. Do think so. Bulking season for Corey and <laughs> heavyweights and bulking season. But, uh, yeah, we can do one more, I think. Um, let's see. Uh, Matt asks, hello, my name is Matt from Wisconsin. Uh, I love the show. I have a question. I'm sorry if this isn't the proper channel for questions. Uh, it is, Matt. Thank you. I've had a carnivorous diet for about six months now. I eat steak or ground beef every day, and liver and wild salmon or sardines at least once a week, and usually bacon two or three days out of the week. This past couple of weeks, I've been experiencing something odd. I work at a grocery store, so I'm exposed to candy, donuts, fruits, sugary cereal, you name it, and I found it relatively easy to get over any cravings I had. I had already lost almost 100 pounds with a low-carb diet and intermittent fasting, so I had plenty of practice already. Lately, however, I've been craving honey, but in a way that's different than any of the other cravings I've had. I want it, like in a way that I want steak when I'm hungry. It's bothered me enough that I've been looking up ways of fermenting honey or some other way to try and make it less sugary, but I really don't want to risk it. Have you or anyone you know of experienced anything like this? Not necessarily with honey, but any other foods. (laughs) interesting <laughs> yeah, it sounds
1: like, way too, man i mean you know like make sure you're not uh you know you're not turning into a bear though no i mean i think certainly um yeah i mean uh sweet foods are darn uh you know appealing you know i think there's a reason for that and i think humans uh you know would, would certainly not pass up that as a as a came across it you know from an evolutionary standpoint it's all about energy you know it really is and so uh, why we eat as humans, you know, prior to, you know, the 1900s was was basically energy sufficiency. You know, we we typically, if we're getting enough animal products, protein's not an issue. And so um, then it becomes an energy. And if you've lost 100 pounds, and, and bravo for you for doing that, it may just be where you're at a point where you just need more energy in your diet. And, you know, you can certainly look at maybe upping the fat content of the diet as something to, to – uh, uh, mitigate that perhaps that may take care of the cravings you know I, I, like I said if, if have some honey if you want it see how see how it affects you you know if it turns you into a raving crazy person is face down in the cupcakes again then that's obviously a wrong thing but I mean probably a small amount of honey is not the end of the world but again the carnivore diet is not a religion it's not a dogma you know if there is some benefit to you you know you, you you know, I don't see a big problem with, with indulging in that from time to time. Now, again, if, if you get to where it's a habit where you just eat it just because you like it, because it's sweet, and we all would, if we have because we have unlimited availability of sweets now, right? I mean, it's, it's everywhere. If you work in a grocery store, there's probably a, a metric ton worth of sugar in the grocery store, so you can get all that anytime you want. And So, you know, I think you just have to have some discipline, you know, and, and realize that, you know, maybe this is going to be something that's going to kind of cause problems with you. Maybe it's not. Um, You know, like I said, if you, if you're really wanting to sort of not fall back into the pattern, the first thing I would do is say, let's let's maybe up the fat tonight a little bit, make sure we're energy energy replete, so that we're not looking at at another source of, of energy like that. But but at the end, at the end of the day, you know, you got to do what, what works for you. Um, you know, I think that there are you know Zach you know uses sugar judiciously for for his training for his energy requirements and doesn't seem to suffer any Ill, Ill effects from that. And so I think we have to be, uh, you know, just very realistic about this stuff. I mean, if we look at tribes like the Hadza who eat a lot of honey, uh, and people will say, well, look at you guys eat a lot of honey, but they also have very bad dental health. And So, you know, it still has, you know, sugar still messes with us. So we've just gotta be cautious about how much of that we consume, you know, maybe a, you know, a, a tablespoon of it here once in a while or a teaspoon of it here once in a while, we'll do, we'll fit the bill. But, but again, you just have to be wary about potential slip, which slope with that stuff. Zach?
0: Yeah, no, I think this is an interesting one. Um, yeah, I think, uh, you may be onto something with it. I think there's like two things to consider when it comes to the craving side of it. One is like what you said, Sean, if you lost over a hundred pounds, it stands to reason he's been in a calorie deficit for quite some time, maybe not chronically, but you know, grand like kind of a macro look you've been losing weight for quite a while and you may just be getting down to that point where now your body is starting to you know get to the lean lean enough state where where your cravings are going to be a little different because it doesn't have that seemingly endless supply of fuel on board um the other thing that uh i selfishly wonder (laughs) is like whenever i see someone who is uh been keto and then carnivore for for the length of time that matt has been is uh like i'm interested to see what happens when he brings the honey back (laughs) like uh not not to a massive degree i don't think like you know i I certainly don't think matt's going to benefit from going to a high carb diet but like what you said sean what happens if he has a tablespoon or two of raw honey i'd be curious to hear what happened, Matt, if you've noticed anything from an energy standpoint, if you feel like it gave you kind of a jolt of energy and then you crashed or a jolt of energy, and then you kind of just returned to the state you had been feeling uh, throughout the context of your, your carnivore approach. Um, the other thing that is interesting too, where it didn't seem to be something that was an issue when you were following the keto diet am I right about that? Was he following a keto diet first? I'm thinking of a different question. I think he said,
1: yeah, I think he's in a low carb diet for a while yeah, before.
0: Okay. So then the, I wonder if, uh, if there'd be anything um, to do with when you switch, if you switch from keto, like we've talked about this in a bunch of podcasts but a lot, sometimes people switch from keto to carnivore, their protein consumption is altered by quite a bit. They tend to be eating more of it. Um, so I wonder if, even just like with the gluconeogenesis pathways that you you're in a position where you have those glycogen stores more readily available due to the gluconeogenesis so then you're craving you know something like honey because your body has that fuel substrate. I'm I'm completely speculating on that. But it's just I'm looking and looking at things that are maybe different from your current program versus what you had been doing historically before that happened. Um, but to add to it, I think in terms of protocol, if you're curious enough to try the honey and see what happens, I would just kind of put yourself in a position where it, it can't kind of like come off the rails. If you're worried that like having honey in the house, you're going to just start, you know, guzzling it above and beyond what you'd, you'd want, you know, get a small amount or just enough to do the test and then don't go beyond that, uh, or don't have it beyond that available to you. So that it's easier to say, okay, I've I've had the, my limit. I'm gonna see what happens and um, go from there.
1: All right, good. That's a good little Q and A session. We'll, we'll hit another these in you know six weeks or so, something like that. I think it's uh, good stuff. Um, I, I certainly we certainly appreciate the questions. It's fun to kind of talk to this stuff, and you know uh, we certainly can uh, reference previous uh, episodes. That, uh, that, that some of this stuff got, comes up in. So, although today the questions were all pretty unique, so I think that was yeah. good. Mm-hmm. Um, for you guys that, that are supporting the show, we thank you guys. For you guys that are, you know, potential sponsors, you know, we, we certainly appreciate that. And you send us a inquiry, we can tell you about our sponsor packets. We, we've had some great sponsors and look for more as we continue to grow and get the word out and get more exposure. So uh, we appreciate all the support. Uh, anything else, Zach?
0: Uh, nothing, nothing major. I, you know, I love the Q and A's and I love the interaction with the Patreon community. And, um, one cool thing I did actually notice about Patreon that's maybe worth mentioning. So the listeners have a chance to hear is that they have a kind of expanded the capabilities of it. So you can do a lot more on Patreon, including, uh, live recordings, I believe. So if we can find a way to navigate, navigate that, it might be an, in, I'd be curious to hear if, Listeners who are not currently Patreon members would enter at a lower tier if they had access to say, you know, a monthly session where Sean and I are on there for 30 minutes just answering questions that way too. Um, So any feedback with that stuff or anything else is greatly appreciated. You can get a hold of us at HPOPodcast at gmail.com or Sean and I individually at our social media channels
1: yeah also if you guys got ideas for guests you want to see uh, send them to us we, we we get a lot of them on there uh you know if they're, if they're willing if we can find them and track them down some some folks uh i'd say we're about 80 to 90 percent success rate in getting people to come on so uh, mm-hmm. keep sending out suggestions because we want to hear we want to talk about what you guys want to hear about and so uh we'll take the direction of the show the way that that the audience wants us to go uh, and uh, keep uh keep our perspective in there
0: all right. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, Joel Saladin was a listener requested guest. Uh, I, I think we're both familiar with Joel, but we hadn't gotten around to sending a formal invite to him. But then when enough people say, hey, get this guy on the show, then tagging him on Twitter and us on Twitter, then it's, you know, it gets that ball rolling a little quicker. So definitely don't be bashful. If there's specific individuals you'd like to hear on HBO Podcast, we'll do our best to get them on the list. Okay.
1: Another good show. Take care, Zach. Thanks.
0: Hey, folks. Human Performance Outliers Podcast is growing. And due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to HPOPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.